It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams. And I am so happy that you made it to class this morning. I'm so thankful for each and every one of you who listen and follow and take the things that I share here on the show that our guests share here on the show and put them into action in your communities. I'm looking forward to having some more of you on the show. Some of you have been reaching out on Twitter, DM, on email, and telling me how you've taken information shared on Sunday mornings and applied it in your community. And so we're going to create a whole segment of our listeners, our students, if you will, so we can profile the great work that you are doing. If you want to be part of that new segment, shout out to the few of you who've already reached out to us and we're putting that together sort of like a show and tell segment, I guess. You can email me joy at sundaycivics.org. You can find June or me on Twitter or on social and send us a note so that you can be a part of this segment that I'm really, really happy to debut because that's really why I started the show <laughs> is to teach people how to take action, not just for you to listen and I'm appreciative of each and every one of you that listen every Sunday morning, but I'm hoping that majority of you are listening to ACT. And that's the reason I created the show. And for those of you who listen to Urban View on a regular basis, you know that I occasionally am on Karen's show. This week I was on Clay Kane's show talking about why we created the show and helping people to understand how government is supposed to function, how it's functioning now and how you can interject and make sure that your voice and your community are being taken care of as well. And so that's the reason I started the show. And I am so appreciative of those of you who are taking the words and putting it into action. Now, this week also, shout out to those of you who helped in voting for Sunday Civics. As you know, we were nominated for an NAACP Image Award. This is the week. This is the week we find out if we indeed become a NAACP Image Award winner. I'll be heading to LA this week. I'm so excited. And so thank you to each and every one of you who voted for the show, who tweeted, shared it on Facebook. I saw y'all. I saw y'all out in them streets <laughs> telling people to vote for Sunday Civics. And I, I really appreciate all of the village that we have here on the show to do that. So we find out this week and I'm looking forward to sharing that information with all of you and celebrating with all of you that we get this, you know, great honor. It's an amazing honor, yes, to be nominated by your own folks, but also uh, to win would certainly be uh, a, a great thing as well. And to be in the category, really, you know, producing the show myself and being in the category with the History Channel and PBS and WNYC, all of whom I listen to is uh, surreal in itself. But, they, they, you know, the folks in the same category are doing amazing work. 
And I'm just so thankful to be um, in that category. And I know it sounds like a cliche that everybody says that, but it, it really is, you know, honored to be in that same category with folks who are doing amazing work, telling amazing stories and uncovering history and sharing that with the world. And that's really what we are looking to do here on the show. And, you know, later I have a guest, I found another civic nerd, Alex Torpy, who will be joining us later in the show. And he's a professor. He's creating a new division at the school he is at, talk, helping people to think differently. And I, I really wanted to share that experience with you to really get to the heart of how we think about problems differently, how we think about the solutions differently as well. And are we repeating the same mistakes is previous decades, previous centuries sometimes when people are sort of scared to try something different because the only thing they know, you know, is safe. It's something that the that people in general, the general public feel safe with. And I'll give you an example here in New York City. Earlier this week, the mayor of New York City is talking about the presence of law enforcement, trying to kick people who are experiencing homelessness out of the subways. All of this you know, rhetoric that is then pulled into media, into discussions, into Twitter, and really doesn't get to the heart of starting from the framework of how do we ensure people who are experiencing homelessness have a place to stay, have proper health care, have proper services. It's part of the reason why I wanted this conversation about thinking differently, that just throwing cops at an issue, just throwing law enforcement, criminalizing issues that we know are issues of poverty is not going to solve the issue. It's just going to take it out of our daily view. And then we'll turn around in 10, 20 years and we'll be in the same position where we have an increased amount of people incarcerated, an increased amount of people who are still under the clutches of poverty. But you know, as long as we don't see it in front of us, as long as it's not on the subway when we are going to work, as long as those people are tucked away and not in our daily view, then, you know, it's OK with us and not that we deal with the actual issues that uh, are resulting in people experiencing these tragedies. So I invite you to listen to the conversation with Alex to really challenge ourselves to think differently about different issues. Issues. And it's going to be messy. It's going to, you know, be messy. And it's not a situation where we have to, you know, research a whole bunch of stuff. And, you know, we have decades of research of data that proves some of the things that we are looking to do right now are going to end, you know, result in the same, bring us back to the same place that we were. So I invite you to think differently about different issues, not only as it pertains to violence in communities, but also in education, also in healthcare. Think differently about these different aspects. And those of you who are in elected office, who are working on policy issues, working in government, you know, this is a challenge for you as well to think differently and not return to the same old, strategies that we know continue to put people in harm's way. So with that in 
2022, there are lots of mamas that are going to be on the ballot. And Sunday Civics is having conversations with candidates who are running this year on the local, state and federal level, along with Vote Mama. I'm happy to be on the board of Vote Mama, who's working to dismantle barriers mothers face while running for office and helping legislators fight for family friendly legislation. And despite 86 percent of American women becoming mothers by the time they are 44 years old, moms with young children make up only 6% of the U.S. Congress. And Vote Mama is currently doing a motherhood census to determine how many moms are serving in state legislatures. So I wanted to highlight some of these mamas who will be on the ballot this cycle. And first up is Nicole Horn in Georgia, who's running for labor commissioner. Yes, in Georgia, labor commissioner is an elected position. So I caught up with her recently to hear more about her candidacy and and advice she has for moms who may be running this cycle. Take a listen. My name is Nicole Horn, and I am running for labor commissioner in the state of Georgia because Georgia deserves to have a safety net that works. And Georgia deserves a labor commissioner who has a vision for not only making sure unemployment benefits that people have earned get paid, but also to have better pathways to better jobs and a better future. I have been a Democratic voter all of my life. And for me, there came a moment when I went from being a voter to being an activist. And that that started when George Bush, George W. Bush won his second term. And I said, never again am I going to sit on the sidelines. My activism started when I was pregnant with my daughter, who's my second child. And I went to from Georgia to South Carolina to canvas for Barack Obama. And after that, I have canvassed, I have phone banked, and I have reached out and tried to get people to get out there and vote, all the while being a working mom. And a few years ago, I was able to sell my company. And so I said, okay, now is the time to run for office because I really believe in government and its ability to make an impact. Not many states vote for a labor commissioner. There are actually only five states that vote for a labor commissioner. And for those of you who may not know, The labor commissioner is in charge of paying unemployment benefits, unemployment insurance. And this is an area that really mattered to me growing up. I grew up the daughter of a nurse and a union member. When my dad built roads for a living, he was a heavy equipment operator. And until I was 16, we lived in Connecticut. And when it's snowy and icy, you can't build roads which means that he was laid almost every winter, usually right before Christmas, that he applied for unemployment, quickly received it. So we didn't have to worry about having food on the table or making sure the mortgage was paid. Two years ago, when the pandemic hit our country, in our state, March businesses shut down and more than 2 million Georgians have applied for unemployment. In Georgia, those Georgians have waited months to receive their benefits. I still talk to people who haven't received their benefits yet. 
And that's because the current labor commissioner has cut staffing in half, has allowed our technology to so old, it requires a mainframe. And people just, there, there weren't, weren't people there to staff it, and he didn't have good processes or technology in place to run it. It was an inept, broken system. So I said, this, this is an area that I'm uniquely qualified to fix and tackle, and I really want to get in there and make an impact. But I also want to talk about underemployment. I think the Department of Labor should be growing jobs in Georgia, and I have a plan to do just that. And so now I have the honor and privilege of running and having these conversations. And when I win, making an impact. Now, Nicole, running for office as a mom is not easy. What challenges have you faced while balancing being a mom? And have your kids made their appearance on the campaign trail? That's a great question. I think that any, gosh, any working mom is going to experience what I go through and have gone through. And because you have to balance running for office it's a job. It's a, it's sometimes it's a 40 hour a week. A lot of times it's a 60 hour a week job and you have to balance making sure that kids are studying for tests that are coming up, making sure that they're getting to after school activities. My daughter plays volleyball and so getting her to tournaments. So we have the challenge of just making sure that all of the plates you've got spinning in the air continue to spin and nothing drops. I'm lucky enough to have a great life partner and my husband who can help with that, but I still am the one they go to get practice getting ready for a big test. And I it's hard for me to let a big event like a volleyball tournament go by without making sure that I'm there for at least a little while to cheer for my daughter. My kids have made appearances. There was a day that I had them talking on camera about um, some issue that we were facing and they both chimed in next to me. They're big supporters of my campaign and are pretty excited to be a part of it. But I have a 13-year-old daughter, so she wants to limit her campaign time. And my 15-year-old son, he's a pretty progressive Democrat. So uh, he may not be in a lot of videos and pictures, but when we need to march, my daughter has been on the marches. When we need to campaign, we can get into ideas and conversations with them. It's been pretty fabulous. So for other moms who may be appearing on the ballot or even thinking about running, what is one piece of advice you would give a mom who's thinking about running for office? I think the experience of being a mom prepares you to run for office. As a mom, you spend your time advocating for your kids. Like you always, and you are probably working, you probably have a job, whether you are staying at home or you're in the office, you've got things you've got to get done every single day, but all in the back of your mind, you're balancing and preparing and advocating for your children. In this role, you are speaking your truth and you're now advocating for a community. You're advocating for that larger group of people whose voice may not be as loud, who may have trouble being heard, who may be, may be a small part of the community that needs a lot of your help. You are, you're uniquely qualified to run. My piece of advice would be speak your truth and have people who are ready to help you 
get the things done that you need to get done, both within your campaign, but also in your personal life. That's where your spouse can be a great partner in this or family member or friends who are there and have your back to have that team ready to go as you speak your truth and advocate for a greater community and a big impact. That would be my advice. We'll be back with more of Sunday Civics, those civics lessons you need to take civic action. In this world, like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm your civics teacher, Eljoy Williams, and joining me at the front of the class is Alex Torpy. He's no stranger, actually, to being at the front of the class as he's an adjunct professor of governance and technology at Seton Hall University's Department of Political Science and Public Affairs. Previously, he served as a mayor at just 23 years old, a municipal business administrator. He founded a digital strategy company of which I'm aware of, and he has a podcast, which we'll talk all about later. Welcome to the front of the class for the very first time, Professor Alex Torpy. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me and for having these conversations about civics. I am really excited to rock out with another civics nerd. <laughs> you know, when we find each other, sometimes it can be, you know, a very long conversation. So I'm going to try to practice discipline here. But no promises. Right, no, no actual promises, but it's fine because, you know, like there's the broadcast version and then you might have to come over to the actual podcast link because we may right. go over. <laughs> But I'm going to have you start where we start with every guest for the first time by you telling us the story of your first civic action. Sure. Yeah. Thank you again for uh, for having me. Um, and so what I'm about to share is not exactly my first civic action, but it's one that's very important uh, to me and it is an early one. Um, and so where, where I went to college, um, we had a um, a student uh, run EMT program. So the emergency medical services on campus was provided by students. And I thought it was really cool that there were just students out in, in your classes, in the dining hall, in the library, who knew what to do during an emergency and could help lend a hand, um, you know, if something went wrong. When I graduated from college and I moved back to South Orange, New Jersey, um, where I grew up, I joined our public library board. Uh, I started writing for a local newspaper um, and I became an EMT and joined our volunteer rescue squad. And what I think is so interesting about the experience is that it brings together people with very different backgrounds and perspectives, but under a common or a shared purpose or passion. And personally, I think, and I think there's many who uh, would uh, probably agree with this, that part of the... Um, that there's been some erosion of experiences, activities that allow people from different groups to sort of bridge together under these common purposes and that that might be contributing to some of the division that it feels like we have. But, you know, the conversations that you have in the, in the back of an ambulance at three in the morning with this person or people that you trust and are in some sometimes very intense uh, situations with that can be those conversations can be um, really real. And I remember so many nights like getting into big political or social or philosophical debates. And so 
not only do I think the experiences like that can be interesting in their own right, and they're also a good chance to give back to your community, but they're a chance to meet and get to know people who may be different than yourself. And hopefully, and I've definitely seen this play out with some people, um, that the experience also encourages and builds people's confidence to take more leadership roles in their community and hopefully encourage them towards being involved in sort of making broader change or impact in their communities or around them. I love that story, particularly about the EMT service, because often, as you can imagine, when people tell the story, it's of them going to the UN or participating in a rally or voting for the first time or registering for the first time. And it seems to be a pattern, at least in your early career, of that local municipal Mm. service. And it makes me think we've been spending some time on the show having conversations with people who have experiences that are not like New York City, California, you know, like sort of these big bureaucratic institutions where people, you know, sometimes believe either from political discourse, TV and other things that everybody lives in a big city like New York City with, you know, millions of people and that there are other local bureaucratic (laughs) governments, Mm -hmm. you know, that are smaller, much smaller, 100,000 people, you know, 200,000 people. And that's actually more of the norm than the large big cities like New York City. And we've talked a bit about rural America and, you know, Western and Southern America, the towns in there. But, you know, you served as a village president, which is the equivalent of mayor. You won your election by like 13 votes. Again, yes, a landslide, yes. <laughs> highlights of like elections have consequences. I know. <laughs> from there. And so like just putting that into context, right? Like a place like New York City, which has 8 million people, 50 city agencies, over close to 400,000 city employees. Talk to me about like, being village president, (laughs) you know, particularly at 23, but sort of managing a smaller bureaucracy where most people live in that kind of environment. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I think that the um, dynamics around population densities is probably one of the key issues um, in understanding some of the, um, some of what's happening in uh, our civic, social kind of political spaces. Um, you know, South Orange is interesting. So it's a it's a town of about 20,000 people, depending on how you measure. We have a census population of about 16,000 plus the university where I teach um, that has a bunch of on-campus uh, residents as well. Um, but I've also spent time, a lot of time in smaller towns, you know, where it's, you know, one or 2,000 people in 50 square miles. Um, and some of the towns I've worked in as a municipal administrator um, were smaller than South Orange too. And I think that... Um, you know, there is a uh, there's something really special about those small places where people really do kind of know each other's name. Um, now, South Orange is not quite there. I mean, we it was a very tight knit community, especially um, the time that I grew up there, um, like through the 90s um, in the in the early 2000s. Um, But it's also a suburb sort of of New York City, a lot of commuters into the city. So we're near New York, but sort of outside of it. Um, And I just think you're exactly right. I mean, people live in very different ways. And part of the 
problems that I have certainly seen when we conceptualize what government should or shouldn't do um, and um, is people's perspectives coming from, you know, are you in a city where you are, where you have a large government that's facilitating um, and managing a whole bunch of things like think about a, you know, a public transportation system um, or something like that versus a rural area where there might be none of that and there might not be a police department or a public works department or anything like that. And so if a tree falls, uh, you know, across the road, you're not calling your town and demanding somebody come out and fix it. You know, you're hopping out with a chainsaw and your neighbor's hopping out and you're cutting it across and pushing it off to the side of the road. And I think that if, if we could be a little more, um, I don't know, thoughtful, empathetic about the different ways that people live, that would probably be a good foundation to helping us find commonality in some of the solutions to some of our problems. I think that's important because my, my first instance of realizing sort of growing up in, you know, New York City primarily, right? It wasn't until my stepmom with my brothers move out to Effort, Pennsylvania. So I'm out there and the conversation, I was like, why do I got no sidewalks? you know and it was because the town didn't want sidewalks right Right. like it's a drivable town like they didn't want to invest it also there wasn't a you know trash pickup right like it was you had to dispose of your you know thing and so it was that trigger is just like wait what (laughs) you know like the the city doesn't handle that the town doesn't handle that and sort of that difference and that you know was about college that difference of there are different experiences that people have with government, which actually puts into context for me when we're talking about what the federal government should do or what Mm -hmm. Congress should do. It helps me better understand that there are people that don't have, don't rely on a government entity for basic services that we, you know, that those of us in bigger cities may take for granted. Right. And so that can influence, people's political values or thought process or further whether or not government should have a hand in certain other policies or institutions because they're not used to government sort of being involved in some of those things, right? And so if you Mm -hmm. believe in limited government and you also live in places where even your local bureaucracy or state bureaucracy isn't involved or engaged in those things, that further... You know, at least to me, it opens my mind in terms of, oh, so now I need to approach the conversation a bit differently if we're talking about, say, unemployment benefits or if we're talking about, you know, food stamps or things like that. Yes, these are overall national programs, but they may play out differently in state state and local communities. And to that point in leading, like you being village president, how does, you know, what happens on a federal or state level sort of play out in local bureaucracies or local towns, at least in your service, even as something as a budget, you know, as the town's budget? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think there's a lot of really sort of complex two-way dynamics there. And part of what I was trying to do is kind of reinvigorate people's interest, especially young people's interest in local government. 
it's part of how I teach uh, the classes that I do in an MPA program, which is trying to, you know, we're not just talking about like budgets and management and HR and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, what can we, you know, what, what is the purpose of being here? What do we think, what are the biggest needs in our communities and how can we use the mechanisms that we have access to, to, to address some of those things? And so I think that, um, you know, certainly something I've been noticing more and more, which is not a good trend, um, but it but it does seem um, it does seem to be happening in a lot of communities, which is that a lot of the divisiveness at the net that exists at the national level, though, I would argue that a lot of that is created by uh, people and entities who benefit from, from the division, that that division does not have to necessarily be there, at least in the way that it um, it feels right now. But a lot of that seems to be seeping down into some of these smaller towns where they used to be able to get together and. Uh, talk about important issues that are facing the community, uh, you know, uh, future uh, tax increases due to rising debt that the government has, uh, you know, issues caused by climate change or flood mitigation in communities, uh, in coastal communities. There's all these really important issues that seem like they are getting harder and harder to address and for people to compromise on. And what I think is interesting about part of what you shared about these different perspectives, um, you know, that we're kind of talking about here is that the way that I've tried to um, approach these things, and sometimes it takes some reminding, but even if sometimes there might be a right or wrong answer to something, just by trying to take that framework out of uh, sort of like your, your mindset and approaching things and just trying to understand people's perspectives of what their life is really like, what their family's life is like, how they were raised, what media and cultural ideologies they're surrounded by, um, and try to look at what they're saying through those lenses, um, that sometimes there isn't a right answer and it's just there are different needs in different places. Um, And then when we get to the national level um, or any level outside of a small community, but this happens in small communities, too. I mean, you know, national government, we have to consolidate, you know, these vastly different. I mean, the population densities, you know, we wouldn't even be able to show it on the screen, the difference between, you know, Manhattan or a rural community. I mean, it's such a vast difference um, in the number of people per square mile. Um, uh, and, and so reconciling those things under one roof is really difficult to do. And we see this play out in communities. Sure, we've all heard about, you know, nimbyism, right? Not in my backyard, where you have people who are supporters of, let's say, one that comes up a lot is people who uh, articulate a support for um, affordable housing that provides um, housing uh, based on income level restrictions um, uh, for people. And that that's a really important way to address some systemic biases and along with transportation policy and education policy can make a really big difference in, um, you know, building or sustaining diverse livable communities. But you have people who say, well, I believe in this. Oh no, but that's, but no, you can't put it there. My house is around the corner. No, it's, it's, that's not the right neighborhood to put it in. Um, and so we have these different needs that are really hard to reconcile. And I think the systems that we have to reconcile are starting to break down and that people, they're not producing amazing results for a lot of reasons. And the trust is starting to erode. And so now people are just getting in the mindset of, 
one side being right or the other side being right. And we don't take the time to think about other people's perspectives and consider the fact that our perspective actually might not be the best one. We'll be back with more of Sunday Civics, those civics lessons you need to take civic action. How can it be? Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm your civics teacher, Eljoy Williams. And joining me at the front of the class is Alex Torpy. Well, I'd like to continue on to that because you made mention of where I wanted to go to next because you have a podcast called Rethinking with Alex Torpy. And, you know, that's one of the things that I put into my political practice, right, is thinking about you know, there's the context of why do we do this thing this way? And then asking the next question, is it the most efficient? Are mm-hmm. we doing it just because of tradition or is there a different right. way to do that? Right. Think about something as education. Right. Education is largely funded by local by the local tax base. Right. Mm-hmm. By property taxes and the value of property, you know, impacts mm-hmm. how much money you have for education. Now, if you have longstanding structural policies and practices that have devalued certain communities and land, they're going to have a less money for edu- for public education and therefore be underfunded. So is that the best way for us to fund education? Probably not, (laughs) you know, but we've been doing it that way because that's the way we've been doing it. And as you mentioned, the the nimbyism not in my backyard, like you're not going to tell me there's not going to be a centralized government in terms of education. But it's just like we know the basics of what we need, what a school district needs, what a school building needs in order to properly educate. Why should it be tied to property taxes? Like it should be you know, done in a different way. And there are all of these conversations that I think some of the conversations that you're having on the podcast explore, even in thinking about polarization and technology of probably rethinking why we do certain things that, yes, there's a historical context. This is how it happened. But maybe we've outgrown it as a country. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We should try something else. Yeah, getting back to those base layer assumptions is so important. It's so easy. And I think this is not, uh, it's not accidental. I don't think that this is being, uh, you know, this isn't conspiratorial that there's people in a room figuring this out. But I think that the way that a lot of our political economic kind of systems work is that they keep people sort of locked into the daily grind and hustle. Um, And oh, you have $100,000 of student loans. Well, now you need to work in this job for the next 20 years to pay those loans off. And you can't even think about moving or taking a risk or experimenting or innovating or being an entrepreneur because then you have this debt. And once, if you stop making payments, now you're going to have bad credit and you can't buy a house. And buying a house is how you build wealth in the United States. So it's like, it keeps people stuck (laughs) in this thing. And where do we get the opportunity to step out of the stream for a second and say, what are all of these assumptions, like you said, are they actually aligned with what our values are right now? And I think often we find that they're probably not. Yeah, you know, and and I had this conversation with someone who's on a different political ideology. We, you know, I was interested, I read his book, you know, everything. I was like, I'm, I'm interested in how he thinks, you know, even though I 
disagree <laughs> with how, like with a lot of his political policies, whatever, but I was like, I'm interested in how he thinks. And I remember having a conversation with him and likening, you know, movements about, you know, changing how, how we define public safety and the roles in it. And, you know, so many people are like, we can't do that. We can't, we can't, we can't. And I'm like, but, but why not? Like, <laughs> but why not? Like we, you know, the, j just the American experiment itself, right. right? Like if we're saying, you know, going back to original values, I don't understand how you don't see a correlation, you know, of the same thing. And you mentioned before people being stuck in the rut is like, I got these loans. I can't experiment. I can't do anything. It was just like, you don't like you would, it wouldn't even be possible for someone to, you know, leave and, you know, another country, another world and go to another one and build a whole new existence like America, because we've tried, <laughs> we've, we've basically become this, the, the thing we were fighting against. And he couldn't, he was like, ah, I never thought about that. And I was just like, yeah, because if you like, if you just strip race from conversations about, you know, certain issues, strip the race away it. If the correlation of founders and, you know, saying that we should have more input in how we are governed, we should have more input in terms of how our money is used or whatever, how do you not see it as the same? The thing is, you've been trained to not think, to, you've been trained to think that the race of a person may, automatically makes a difference and not that the story is the same, you know, and going back to that small town, local Thing. There are people, there are all these examples we can point to in history where, you know, you see people of different race, different ethnic backgrounds and others are able to strip that and saying like, we have the common theme of like, your house is across the street from my house. And all of us are expensive this, this ash from this <laughs> factory, right? right? Like, right. you know, and we can come together on those issues, but, you know, things like race and economic status and other things are always used as that wedge to make you think that you're not the same. Yeah, it's true. And I mean, I, I, I think, you know, the, the division that it feels like we have, you know, I did this um, uh, program about four years ago. Um, uh, uh, it was a nonpartisan nationwide leadership development program called Pathways for America. And the, the goal was to um, not just sort of encourage people to run for office, but to help them find their sort of civic pathway, whatever that may be. And we, uh, people were nominated into the program. We did our own search um, and we brought in people from all over the country. Uh, I mean, the age span was like from 20 to 90. We had people from cities to rural areas. We got a lot of different socioeconomic and demographic backgrounds and people got and met in in-person groups in some places in some cities and in some rural areas. And we also did a lot over uh, video. And we had these groups come together and we uh, facilitated conversations that were, that were carefully done and meant to try to uh, highlight some of the things, to not get sucked into the things that easily divide us. And we found so, people had these like brilliant conversations who would have never met each other before. There's so few institutions that are encouraging that kind of like, I don't know, that kind of bridging um, interactions. And, you know, two of the things that came out from those conversations, we had about 200 people participate in an event um, in the beginning of the program. And then I think 13 people who graduated from the program a few months later and almost 
almost entirely universally among that 200 people, people said that there should be more civic education in schools at a younger age and that they wanted to have places where they could interact with people who had different backgrounds in themselves, but they didn't know where to go for that. And almost everybody in every single group identified those as things that were important bedrocks to a better, more sustainable civic future. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I listened to one of the conversations that you had on your website. I'm not sure if it was on the podcast or you were just part of a panel talking about polarization and technology, Mm -hmm. how online platforms, you know, provide space for both good (laughs) and a lot of bad, obviously, toxic political discourse in general. And you used an example of how you address this locally. There was Mm -hmm. a a local. Can you talk? Can you share that example and talk a bit about that? Sure. Um, So when I got elected in South Orange, this is in 2011, um, this sort of um, predominant space for local discourse was these um, online message boards. Um, And they were largely anonymous. um, And the people who ran them had their own, um, you know, kind of political slants as well. Um, You know, certain people got away with doing certain things, certain people, they were moderated very strictly. Um, And the the, the conversations were like horrifically toxic. And I was, I was like stuck on it when I was running for office, um, you know, and in the first, I don't know, three months or six months, maybe. I mean, I was just looking at it all the time because I thought this was, uh, this was like kind of the only place there wasn't a ton happening on Facebook and there weren't really any other places. It was just one website. Um, and, um, and then I started to realize The conversations that were happening on this website were completely disconnected from the reality of the community. And so, like we mentioned, you know, I was on our library board. I had written for a local newspaper, which I I stopped doing uh, when I ran for office. Um, I wasn't a news reporter, but I had a column. Um, I was on our rescue squad. So I was interacting with residents that way. And I was trying to start my company. So we had like a Starbucks in our downtown. And I used to basically, if I wasn't in the municipal building, uh, or uh, on a rescue squad call or in grad school, I was sitting in, you know, a coffee shop uh, and people would, you know, every two minutes come by and ask questions or ask me things about what was going on in town. And I started to realize that the, you know, the issues that were like controversies online, nobody asked about in person. And I also used, I used to cold call residents after I got elected on weekends, which is something I think all elected officials should do, right? Which is just call people in your community call a dozen people or so, you know, every Saturday, every Sunday and just, hey, what's up? How's it going? Uh, Do you have any questions? Any issues going on? Like be proactive about soliciting feedback. And by being proactive and, and, and getting feedback from a broader representation of the community, I learned that there was this huge disconnect. And so I, um, and, and there was a day um, where um, I'll, sh- I'll share. I don't think I shared it in that conversation. I'll, I'll share it now. But it was the last comment that I read on this website that was like really horrible, which was we were negotiating a contract, um, uh, a separation agreement with an employee um, who had been in the community for a while. And, you know, for, for for right or wrong reasons, there were, you know, people were there was like some attention about that from a public perspective. But of course, your negotiations about employees contracts are done um uh, largely uh, confidentially. Um, 
uh, and um, and there were so and we were trying to negotiate an agreement that was beneficial for the community, but we were in a very bad. Um, we did not have the sort of uh, upper hand or or whatever in the negotiation. We were locked into some things from previous administrations, um, and we were trying to negotiate this. And I remember looking on this um, uh, this message board, and the comment was, um, "And this is this is going to sound horrible, and it is." Um, but the comment was um, that the person wrote, "I hope this person uh, gets cancer, and the town has to pay for it." Uh, because the person had medical benefits as part of the contract. Um, and I remember reading that and it was like, I can't believe someone would say that. And the craziest part was that it, it, people didn't jump on them and condemn it, really. Um, and I said, I don't want this in my life. I don't want to. I don't want this sort of feed, whatever this is. I don't I don't need this. I don't want this. Um, and I started very publicly pushing back against that kind of message board. And, you know, we identified these like, 15 different ways that you could get involved and in on committees or office hours or other social media channels or all these different ways that we were collecting feedback, providing information. It said, you could do any of these things. And, and if you have ideas about other things we could do, tell us and we'll create those. But this one place, this toxic anonymous place that doesn't incentivize constructive dialogue and that most people in the community that I talk to, they would never weigh in right publicly because they were afraid of being on the receiving end of that kind of horrible, I mean, you can't call it discourse, but whatever that is, they yeah. didn't want to even step in there. And so, you know, communities that are that toxic, like that, they just keep getting, you know, a thinner and thinner slice of people as people say, okay, I can't be involved in this anymore. Um, so we created all these different committees. We got people involved in actually working on issues, providing us feedback. We did all these other channels. We put our budget data out in spreadsheets and we did all these different things to engage people and were able to collect feedback in a way that I think was not only more valuable and constructive, but it was a much broader representation of people in the community such that we actually had a better idea of what people in town thought in this tiny, tiny group of probably less than a dozen people who were really active on it. And some of them I know <laughs> would have multiple accounts, post something, sign out of one account, sign into another account. Yes, I agree. And like, <laughs> you know, that's yeah, the, the, the online trolls who do that, you know, the, you know, on whatever platform, whether it's message boards, Twitter, Facebook, or what have you, there's always the chorus, right? Like, the, right. and then, you know, to a certain extent, being behind a screen allows for people to have more courage than they wouldn't have if you were in a town meeting in that instance, but you know, you never know, <laughs> you know, because as you've talked about the polarization, we've become comfortable with that kind of discourse right. and it has seeped from online, you know, even into our everyday daily discourse, even among public officials. Now I, I want to switch gears really quick because you're designing a new undergraduate course at Seton Hall mm -hmm. on this topic on civics in general, polarization and media, what is the goal here, you know, in this program and really in the civics projects you're doing out in the community outside of a classroom to really engage people in civic discourse? Yeah, I think the, the goals here are to sort of empower or enable people to be able to navigate all of these spaces uh, more independently, more in line with their own goals. You know, I think like we've been talking about a little bit, it's very easy to get lost 
in uh, the fact that we're often operating within constraints set by other parties. Um, and whether that's a political party or whether it's a company that owns a social media platform or everybody has incentives out there and we're often not aware of those things. And so giving people some of the tools to be able to navigate that a little bit more effectively, make better decisions um, in whatever ways align with their values. And so in the class, for example, um, we're going to be talking about things like um, we're going to talk about that, how to understand the context of like the systems that you're in. Um, we're going to talk about things like what's your personal responsibility when sharing information online, um, which I think is a really important question these days. You know, oh, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to have you come back for that because I'm doing a whole series. You know, the thing that happened during COVID of people is saying I'm doing my own research and, right. I, you know, in asking people, well, what does that entail? What's the process of you doing your own research? And it's just like, I'm just doing it on my own. I'm like, yeah, but it, what, what's your what's the process? Right? right. And so people who say that can't tell you, they're just like, I'm just reading. I was like, oh, okay, but how are you? <laughs> like, you know, how do you do that? Right. And so right. Of realizing that, you know, unless you're in a school setting, you know, if you go into master's program or thing or whatever, like just going back to the basics of how you do do your research, how do you, are you just, you know, seeking confirmation bias just in, getting more information to prove the point you've already proven or are you really doing research to sort of come to your own conclusion? Yeah, I think, I think we know which one it often falls in and it's right. And it's tough because like, if you think about like a library and I think libraries are amazing places that potentially have an opportunity to play a really interesting role as we go forward here. But if you think about like going to a, before internet, like going to a library to do research on something and you're pulling books off of shelves and things like that, the library is not rearranging itself as you're doing that to optimize your engagement, right? But when you're looking at videos on YouTube, it is doing that. And I think that for people who don't, not everybody is really fully aware of the fact that on most of these platforms, that you're not the customer of the platform, you're the product. The advertisers are the customer. And that means that, you know, when you click that video, I mean, we've all seen this and heard, I mean, you get down some rabbit holes on YouTube really quickly. Um, and libraries didn't do that. And so there's interesting opportunities for us, I think, to be um, like what you're talking about, like how do, and that's gonna be another topic of the, of the course is, how do you do research? And talking about, we talk about these cognitive biases in the class that I teach. So we just did this uh, last night um, in the class that I teach currently. And how can you push back against some of those things? And interestingly, especially if you're an entrepreneurial focused person, which I think there's huge opportunity for uh, private sector and innovation, like in tech companies to make a, a, um, a difference here, could we design platforms that maybe are not ad supported that don't just try to maximize your engagement on the platform, but maybe show you the thing that it thinks you're looking for, but then show you something different that it thinks you're not looking for. There's different ways that I think we could design, you know, video platforms or social media platforms or news platforms that don't just keep feeding us things to optimize engagement, but, are meant to maximize other goals and those goals might be critical thought. Yeah. 
Well, Alex, certainly as civic nerds, we can continue down the rabbit hole, but I want to thank you so very much for joining us on Sunday Civics. You're welcome back anytime because I love civic nerds and love the conversation. And I want to thank you for making time to discuss all that you're working on with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and talking about all of this. And thanks to all of you for making it to class this Sunday. We'll be back next Sunday with more of Sunday Civics, those civics lessons you need to take civic action. Have a great one. Uh,